When Sam said that I run leading the way, I want to say leading the way runs me. (laughs) That is the truth. I'm going to read this morning's scripture, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump straight into it. It's uh, found in your pew Bible. If you've got the pew Bible in front of you, 1749, 1749. It's Romans chapter 2, verses 17, uh, starting with verse 17, going into chapter 3, verse 18. So 217 to 318 of the book of Romans, or 1749 in your pew Bible, or on the screens. It's no excuse. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God." What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could, jo- how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's untruthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. 
What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. I'm studying the book of Romans with a friend who's involved in politics. And we got to the end of chapter 3, and he said, tell me what's going on here, really. And I said, okay, chapter 1, Paul is speaking to the Democrats, (laughs) the people who boo God on their stage. In chapter 2, he's talking to the Republicans. They put just enough God in 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 their stuff to make it look like they're doing right. But in chapter 3, we learn that the foot is level at the cross, and we're all in this thing together. We're all in need of Jesus. So there's your first three chapter summary. We can all go home. A few weeks ago, I went down to see a friend who runs a law enforcement facility south of the city. It's actually the largest in the state of Georgia. It's where Every police force, every GBI unit, every SWAT team, everybody, fire departments, everybody trains in this facility. There happens to be a prison on this campus as well, a juvenile detention center. It's where the worst of the juveniles go, and then when they become 18, they go into a formal prison later. My friend, my police officer friend, he went to visit some of the inmates recently. And he saw this young man with tattoos all over his face, and he said, this was the kind of guy you would not want on your side of the road in the middle of the night, in the dark. And my friend couldn't take his eye of suspicion off this tattooed man. The warden leaned over to him and he said, you know, that kid has really turned his life around. That young man has really cleaned up his act. And he went out and he got his high school diploma, and he's really a good kid. My friend could not believe it. He said, I felt that maybe I had judged this kid too quickly. Maybe I looked at his outward appearance and made a quick judgment. So he walked up to the young man, he stuck his hand out, and he said, I want to congratulate you on getting your high school diploma. And he said, the kid snapped back and said, why do you care? But it wasn't in a way that was like, you know, rude or combative. It was in an inquisitive way. Like, why would someone with no vested interest in me, a murderer, congratulate me for something like this accomplishment, this GED? And my friend did his spiel where he says, uh, my hope is that nobody is in prison and nobody weighs down the state or, you know, is a burden on my fellow officers, a burden on the government. The young man began to tell my police officer friend that he had seen his first murder at the age of eight years old. 
how his mother had had a series of boyfriends who were abusive and cruel. And the deeper that this inmate went with his life story, the more that my friend Chris said, I judge this kid too quickly. You see, that's our default as humans. Our default is to look at the outward, right? The physical, and we make a judgment. But that's not God's default. God is more interested in our hearts. Perhaps you're hearing this and you're saying, I don't know, Josh, that's, you know, a guy with tattoos all over his face, he's a murderer, Uh, you know, he'd be right to be suspicious of him. And I'm not saying you throw out wisdom, I don't want you walking through downtown Atlanta with your wallet in your hand. What I'm saying is that when we go deeper below the surface with people, we may realize our first impression was incorrect. And God is not interested in our outward displays of religiosity, but rather an inward renewal of the heart. Just this week, I read an article about a fit, well-groomed, well-compensated, well-educated deacon of his church hiring a hitman to kill his wife. And when he couldn't get the hitman to do the job, he did it himself. You see, God sees what's in a man's heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. Looks can be deceiving. The Lord sees past the tattoos and the deacon badge. Some here in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe a business deal. Maybe a marriage. What you thought was adding up visually to be all that turned out beneath the surface to be something very different. And this morning's text screams out, don't get fooled by outward display of religiosity. Do not think that outward piety will save you. God is able to see below the surface. And not only see below the surface, but heal below the surface. This leads me to my first point is that Paul, in chapter 217 through 224, he's saying, practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. Perhaps you've heard this phrase, do as I say, not as I do. I caught myself saying this to one of my kids the other day. I couldn't believe I'd said it. When our own actions stand in contrast to what we're espousing, it's called hypocrisy. And the Apostle Paul here in these verses is addressing this hypocrisy. He says, beginning in verse 21, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, when I read this, I, I kind of wondered, like, was theft and adultery really rampant amongst rabbis? I mean, were they, were, they, were they leaving the temple, taking off their robe, and then going to their night job as cat burglars? 
Some scholars think that there was rampant adultery and theft amongst the the, the Jewish people of the time, of Paul's time. But I think that what Paul is doing here is he's setting the stage that theft and adultery, any breaking of God's law, is not reserved to a purely outward manifestation of that. Matthew records Christ's words in Matthew 5, 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I think Paul here has laid his first foundational slab for the religious Jew as he constructs this building that I think ultimately he's going to tear down and rebuild a better one. He's beginning to show that the religious Jew, that for the religious Jew, that it's not enough just to have possession of the law. And it's not enough just to superficially display it to others. You have to practice what you preach. And further to that, even further, it's not just an outward practice, but there's the inward change or the inward practice that must take place first. It must happen from the center to the circumference. But how? How how do we fix our outward problems these days? We start doing pious things. We post pictures of Scripture readings on Twitter. We put our quiet time material on social media. We post pictures of our short-term missions trips to show how religious and how generous we are. The lesson of Ole Miss's former football coach, Hugh Freeze, stands as a warning to us all. You can post Scripture on Twitter and talk a big religious game, but if you're calling an escort service on the same smartphone you're posting, there is a much, much, much deeper heart problem. This week, he and his wife spoke at Liberty University. I encourage you to go online and see it. He talked about his past private sins, that his walls came crumbling down in 2017 when the private sin became public and he lost his job and was disgraced. Sometimes the Lord has to tear down our walls before he can build something much better. And for the believer, that's a new heart. His wife publicly forgave him in that liberty interview, and it's very powerful. I encourage you to go and see it. But on to my second point. An outward sign of an inward reality. That's what Paul is talking about in 2.25 through 3.8. He's tackling this issue of circumcision. He's already laid the foundation that mere possession of the law is not enough. And now he's laying down some more bricks. He takes it a step further in diagnosing the real problem, beginning in verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Just a refresher. Circumcision was a sign of a covenant between the Lord and Abraham. And in Genesis 17, the Lord says, Every male among you shall be circumcised as a sign 
of the covenant between me and you. In subsequent years, amongst uh, Jews, this became kind of a mysterious, sort of mystical, superstitious thing. And Jews began to see this circumcision as an atoning act or a saving act. They thought they were saved by the fact that they were marked. But that's not how it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a sign of something that took place in here. There was a time in the medieval church that baptism was thought to save people. And Paul is getting back to the heart of the matter, no pun intended, by getting back to the way a sign or symbol should be viewed. What is most important is what God has done in here, not outside. You see, a person can have all the outward signs of being a Christian, baptized, takes communion, puts the fish on the back of his car, the love God and love my country Twitter profile, and yet have an unclean heart. You know, in seminary, we talk about the church visible and the church invisible. The church visible is made up of believers and unbelievers. But the invisible church is those whose hearts have been renewed, those whose hearts have been regenerated. The Spirit of God has come into their hearts, changing their desires, and any outward manifestation of that change points to an inward reality. Whenever I do a baptism or I participate in a baptism, I almost always say this phrase, what you are doing is an outward sign of an inward Reality, the act alone will not save you. This water is not holy. Christ saves you. And this act is a public display of that work that occurred in your heart. Over the last few years, the Lord has um, graciously given me an opportunity to befriend a gentleman who's in the fashion industry. Originally from France, Hugo Jacomet built a brand as the Parisian Gentleman. Before Christ, he had served as a leader of Scientology Europe. He had pursued hedonism. He had partied with the best of them. But there was always something missing. He ultimately accepted Christ when he realized that he was in need of the Lord's forgiveness. When he asked me to baptize him this summer, I jumped at the chance. Let me show you a clip. I want to show you a clip of this baptism. In Proverbs 8, it says, Those who diligently seek me will find me. The Lord so struck him that the evidence of his faith was undeniable. Hugo's acceptance of Christ changed everything. I found and he found peace. Recently, Hugo told me that he wanted to be baptized. This, it's an outward symbol of an inward reality. The inward reality is that you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart. Hugo, 
Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and atoned for your sins? Yes, I do believe. Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Yeah, He is my Lord and Savior. Hugo, by that profession of faith and in front of these witnesses, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> it was like the death of the old Hugo and the, and the Renaissance and the, the new birth of the new Hugo, emptying my, myself of myself to, to make some room for the Holy Spirit and for Christ to work through me. It was just uh, like oxygen, and I know it was the Spirit of God. I would encourage you when you go home today, uh, go to the Apostles website. The full 20-minute piece that the guys put together about Hugo's life is on the Apostles website, and it is uh, fantastic. An outward sign of an inward reality. The old Hugo died and the new Christ-filled Hugo came up. He didn't come to that decision in a hasty manner to be baptized. He had spent a great deal of time thinking and praying about this decision. Because he knows that in his industry, being a Christian will not be easy. This goes to my, next to my third point, which is we need a heart surgeon, not a plastic surgeon. 3.9 through 3.18. A few years ago, we traveled to Mexico with a few couples. And uh, one of the couples, the husband of one of the couples got what I like to call a case of the funny tummy. Only it wasn't very funny. They rushed him to the local hospital in Cabo. And um, we decided to fly back because we didn't think it was worth us hanging around. His wife stayed with him. And when I landed at Hartsfield four hours later, I had like 12 text messages and voicemails. And his wife was saying that the doctors there wanted to operate on him. And I thought... We need a real heart doctor because these guys were going to put a pacemaker in him. So I called the best heart surgeon in Atlanta. And I said, Doc, these guys want to rip him up in Cabo. And I think it's just a case of diarrhea. And he, so he asked me some questions about his condition. And I told him and he said, we need to get him back to Atlanta now. It didn't take him much information to realize that the diagnosis was wrong. And in fact, the hospital's heart monitor was broken. And all he needed was some Imodium and a round of Cipro. We got him on the next flight to Atlanta. You see, we needed a heart doctor to tell us that. We needed a heart doctor to get to the bottom of my friend's condition. The Apostle Paul in these final verses is saying, the heart monitor is not broken. He's saying this hardness of heart has not just infected some and not others. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. The problem is we don't believe that our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things, as it says in Jeremiah 17, 9. And the unwillingness, our unwillingness to come to the end of ourselves leads us to a plastic surgeon instead of that heart doctor. I saw on the news, I keep up with Megyn Kelly and all that stuff, so I saw on the news that Jane Fonda has been talking about her plastic surgeries, 
and how proud she is of them. And I'm not judging her. I don't care whether you get plastic surgery or not. But she said something interesting in the interview. She said, I want to look the way I feel. And I believe her. I think there is a discontentment on the inside leading to a discontentment on the outside. What she needs, what we all need, is to address the inside. I remember talking to a plastic surgeon friend, and uh, I was asking him about his business, and I said, do you ever have to turn people away? And he said, yes, all the time. He shared that there are people who go from surgery to surgery, constantly changing their appearance, and he sends them to a counselor because the problem they have cannot be fixed by his scalpel. Paul is saying to us that we must first come to understand our heart needs replacement. It needs renewal. It's not just a cosmetic fix. Jesus didn't come just to fix our teeth. He came to rescue us from sin and death. Listen to this from Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Christ came not to make us feel better about ourselves. He came to take us from death to life. This week, my kids are memorizing Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. As I was working on my sermon, I said, oh, isn't that a brilliant passage? Relates so much to this Romans passage. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when, the, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. I said at the beginning that God is not interested in outward signs of religiosity, but rather He's interested in your heart. I'm not talking about the fruit or evidence of the Spirit of God in one's life. I'm not talking about the exhortation that, to live a holy life or a life of obedience out of gratefulness for what He's done for us. That's another sermon for another time. The question for us in this passage is, how is your heart? Not your physical heart, the metaphorical heart which this passage speaks to. Has it become covered in vines? The sin which so easily entangles, as the writer of Hebrews says? Or perhaps you are like my friend Hugo. You have come to the conclusion that you need a new heart. You're tired of masking that heart with religious activity, a shiny social media profile, tired of the plastic surgeon's attempts at making you feel better. In the book of James, chapter 4, there are these wonderful words, draw near to God and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, 
you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. My friend Hugo, he says that when he tells some of his elitist European friends that he's become a Christian, he says they physically step back from him. You know, one would think that God's reaction to us as unclean would be that He would step back from us. But the opposite is true. He doesn't step back from us. He draws closer to us. That's an amazing reality. It doesn't say you have to clean yourself and then He draws close to you. It says, draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. And then the cleansing happens. We think we have to come to Him clean. And we don't. Cleaning is His job. Let's draw near to Him now in prayer. Lord, thank You for this reality. Thank You that we don't have to strive and strain and struggle to make things right and to make things look right in our own strength, but that Your Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in our hearts. It finds purchase, and out of that comes fruit, So I do pray for anyone here, Lord, whose heart is wrapped in vines. Perhaps they have become cold or callous towards you. They know you, they love you, but they're cold and calloused. I pray, Lord, that those vines would be stripped away. Lord, for those that are like my friend Hugo, they know they have a heart of stone. They're looking to you for that heart of flesh. And so, Lord, we cry out to you this morning. We ask that you would indeed do that you would pour your spirit out. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.